0: From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Hi, so welcome to our QI Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Gideon Smith. I am the Chair of Quality Improvement at Harvard's Mass General Hospital. And I'm here today with Rita Kodosh, who is an Associate Professor and Vice Chair at UMass. So we're talking today about the QI Symposium, Rita. Last year, Rita, we had a keynote speaker who talked on the theme of access and equity. And a lot of the resident talks were on teledermatology. We did have one on that kind of theme this year. Um, That was by Mika Tabata from University of Texas at Austin and she was talking about improving the effectiveness of a safety net teledermatology consult service through a standardized referral template. Now, this is a a perennial theme for us about access. I wondered what kind of themes you saw or what problems she ran into that you think are common to this kind of topic.
0: Thanks, Gideon. I love their project. It seems so simple, but it is so common across I think all of our experiences and all of our different practice settings that we run into a problem in teledermatology when the referring provider thinks that all we need is a photo and the context and history are immaterial. And that I think it's a huge misconception because it's actually quite difficult to interpret a photo out of context. So I really applaud them for doing this project And I think sharing a template like they had would apply across many different institutions. We have actually run into similar problems at UMass. And even though we have a standardized template, many referring physicians don't complete all the questions. We've tried to get around it through making every question a hard stop, meaning the physician cannot submit it without filling out every question that we care about. And I think that really helps.
1: That's great. You know, we also have had this problem, obviously, at Mass General. And I thought it was interesting that they focused so much on the history, because obviously that is important. But the one area where we had huge area for improvement was actually the photographs, because they were always out of focus. They didn't. They weren't close enough. And that was the one thing that they noted at the end of their project that was kind of one more area to improve. And it's hard to get these photographs taken. Do you have any experience with improving that for patients?
0: So it's funny that you ask. I've actually worked on the project that started with the idea that we needed to improve the quality of patient-submitted photos. And we worked for several months making instructions for patients to follow. And then we did a little baseline data collection, which, as you know, is really important before you undertake any improvement. So when we did our baseline data collection, we found that more than 90% of patient photos submitted with no instructions were adequate. Now they were not perfect by any means, so I think there's a big difference between what makes for a perfect photo and what makes for a photo that's good enough. And we found that most photos were good enough, so we actually didn't proceed with phase two of trying to get our patients to follow instructions because we didn't feel that it would necessarily lead to a big improvement.
1: That's great. So this year's keynote speaker, Brent James, renowned throughout the field, talked really about themes of variation on waste, which are really two other Im- huge themes in our field. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about what he pointed out so that people can understand the context of some of the other resident presentations, which we'll talk about in a minute.
0: Those of us who work in quality improvement have heard many times that variation is the enemy of quality. And I think Dr. James did a great job going through some examples, showing that in the way we practice, even within the same institution, and even when you look at the same physician, there is a huge variation in how we do things, how we do the same type of thing from one day to the next. And all studies that have been done, they show that even when we know what the best practice is, even when such a thing has been established, We only execute correctly about 50% of the time when we don't have any help. So we could do so much better. If we could improve on this a little bit, will mean that we will be providing better, safer care to our patients.
1: Yeah, that's great. As Brent James said, it's variation, not just between institutions, but between providers. And even for myself, it's a combination between the provider and the individual patient. We may not do the same thing every time, even for, a simple biopsy of a basal cell.
0: And sometimes this variation is not warranted. Like when you're doing a biopsy, you should pretty much be doing the same thing every time. But patients are complex and medicine is very complex. And so there are some cases where variation is very appropriate depending on the case. And so it's about reducing the variation in those instances where You shouldn't deviate from the process and giving people room to vary when it's appropriate. Medicine is so complex. I think the quote that has really stuck with me from another giant in quality improvement, Dr. Berwick was that he said, this is medicine, we're not making toasters here. And he is very right. There's just so much complexity that it's not the same as many other processes that we try to improve in industry and so forth.
1: Great. So one of the projects by one of the residents was specifically on decreasing waste related to surgery and biopsies. And that was by Paige Wollstonecroft from Stanford University. What are the barriers and what are the challenges in doing that kind of project or any barriers that you noted in and what they encountered?
0: I thought they went about their project in this great way where they collected some baseline data, and they found clinics and processes where there really wasn't much waste, so they didn't need to meddle. And then they found that in their surgical clinic, there was a lot of variation tray to tray and a lot of waste. So they focused on that area. And again, it's difficult because all of us are particular in how we do things. Surgeons are quite particular in how they do their procedures. So there's a lot of variation that some of it may be necessary, but what I think they did a great job of is getting people's buy-in into why this is important, because this is part of being environmentally sustainable, and medicine is we create a lot of waste. And so being conscious about it and trying to improve is very important. So I love that they really, before moving forward, they really sat down with the whole team and explained the why before they started thinking about the how they were gonna improve. And so I think they're gonna be successful even though they'll face some challenges and will need to account for different practices. I think they'll succeed overall.
1: Right. Now, I thought that was a true strength as well. Every time you do a quality improvement, if you're wanting people to accept the change or to buy into changes in behavior, you really need to have everyone on board and understanding why this is happening. The other one that looked at variation was Michael Tassifer from Mount Sinai, and he was looking at the Ohio melanoma reporting system. Now, data is always really important for us to collect, but obviously always challenging about kind of like the amount of data and the variation in the data itself. Can you talk a little bit about kind of like projects that look at variation and how kind of those can be challenging?
0: I think variation is a really important concept. And what you want to understand before you jump into a project is whether what you're seeing is significant and really needs an intervention. So for example, if you follow data for only a month, you might suddenly see that it looks like a spike in lost specimens. And you might decide, my goodness, we need to intervene. What's going on here? And not to say that when you see an anomaly in data like that, that you shouldn't take notice, but what would be really important is to look at this process over time and to see if what you're seeing from one month to the next is really a significant change or something that's been part of the normal variation and how your department functions over the last year. So sometimes it's just really important to know the baseline of your process before you decide where and how to intervene.
1: Right. So, I agree. Really important to have that baseline data from pilot studies. And then, obviously, unlike the big kind of randomized control trials that they do for the biologics and things, we in QI were hopefully having very rare safety events. So, this is small data, and it has a whole different kind of statistical support or set of tools that we usually use, like runtime plots, control Uh, charts, which can be very helpful in seeing deviations from the norm.
0: I know we love run charts, but some people wonder what they are. They're really, really simple, a simple but very useful tool in quality improvement where you just see how things perform over time. And it's such a simple plot, but really helps you understand how the process is going.
1: So I think a lot of people think of QI and patient safety as really kind of like staid and boring. And we've just been talking about small data sets and statistics, so we probably haven't done anything to change that. So let's try and shake that up. Oftentimes, quality improvement is also about not doing the run of the mill thing. It is truly about trying to do something innovative. And I was wondering whether there are any projects you've worked on or things that were in the resident symposium that you thought were cutting edge this year.
0: I think that quality improvement gets a bad rep. I think most people think of it as routine process improvement in the clinic, which, you know, me and you get really excited about, but not everybody. What I think is wonderful about quality improvement is that it can be really about anything. And we saw that in the variety of the projects that came through this year. You know, it was everything from ethics to addressing microaggressions in clinic to environmental sustainability and reducing waste. And it just highlights that in quality improvement, you have to find something that you value, that gets you out of bed in the morning, that you really want to work on and work on that. And I think when that's the approach people take, that they find something that they care about and their team cares about, doing this work really brings a lot of joy and fulfillment to the person and their team. And I think this was apparent in the presentations of our resident award recipients. I'll tell you that there's actually good data for this, that for example, working on projects that address diversity, equity, and inclusion improves people's morale and reduces burnout. At UMass, we're currently working on a project to improve access, but we're focusing on making sure that we are doing this equitably, and we're collecting data so we understand who has access to our clinic, making sure that patients from diverse backgrounds that represent our community have equitable access to our clinic. And we have residents and students working on this, and they're still doing Excel pivot tables and things that may not sound very exciting. But the reason they're excited about this work is they know that if we improve this, we're going to serve our community better. And that's what drives them. So that's my main message about quality improvement to anyone who is listening. Do what you love. Do what you care about. And um, think about how you can improve it, even in a small way. And I think it's going to make your day more fulfilled and better than if you didn't do
1: it. Right, so I think QI, as you say, really takes it to a larger stage. We talk about things like waste reduction, which is so important to the environment. We talk about access and equity, which is really important topic. And these are not the things that people necessarily associate with QI. And I think on the other end of it, we have things like Rithu Swali's presentation from University of Nebraska Medical Center, where they were looking at kind of virtual reality as a means to reduce anxiety and procedural pain in pediatric dermatology outpatient procedures. And that's just not something that most of us are doing, but it's a neat technological idea, and it truly is quality improvement.
0: I thought it was really innovative And I think we already try to distract our patients. Some of them are better than us. They distract themselves with their phones or music. And sometimes, actually, it helps the physician feel more confident when they know that their patient is less anxious. So I think it was an innovative and interesting idea. And you're right, it's not your typical quality improvement, but I think it's very much worth doing projects like this.
1: So at my institution, we always have to come up with three or four different interventions that we're going to do to try and prevent a safety event when they happen. And we always rank these also in terms of the strength of the intervention. And education is really ranked lowly by us. And part of that was alluded to by Brent James when he said, even when there are guidelines... 50% of the time people don't really follow them. So what kind of interventions are good in QI?
0: So it's true, education is the easiest intervention sometimes and the cheapest to do, but not very effective and usually doesn't, even if the changes do take place, they usually don't stick. So things that help are things that can be hardwired into the system. Honestly, we don't have a lot of it in practice yet. So, for example, if you're going to determine whether somebody should have most for their skin cancer, it would be so nice to have the appropriate use criteria pop up on your screen as you're putting a most referral in. That would be a way to hardwire the guidelines. Right now we have an app that most people have on their phones, but it doesn't force you to look at the criteria before you refer or before you start the procedure. So, and there's a huge difference between knowing that there are guidelines and having a way in which it's really easy to follow them.
1: Right. So system processes, right? So things in place that make a lot of automaticity about this that takes the the decision or the ability to make the wrong decision out of the provider's hands and really supports them in in knowing what is the appropriate course. I often like to think about, you know, I remember when my laptop, every time I booted it up, it would come up with a please edit the .exe file. And these days, my laptop is seamless. I turn it on, it starts up every time. And I kind of feel like a lot of our healthcare technology hasn't got there yet. We're still at that level where we're really on the front line in terms of editing and changing and interfering, and it would just be the next level where it actually tells us what we're trying to do, and we have to overwrite that.
0: Agreed, so, so medicine is complex, so I think it's an intersection of it being pretty difficult to come up with what is the best practice, and then on top of it, how to implement that best practice in a way that's easily actionable, I think it's just, it's not an easy problem to solve, but it's a worthy cause.
1: So whilst we're on the topic of education, still super important, our QI Innovations Award went to Dr. Lindsey Stroud, and she specifically talked about ways how education on QI itself actually improved qi were there any kind of key themes or messages or lessons learned from that that we should repeat here so people out there who weren't able to see that talk can kind of take that into their own institutions
0: so dr stroud she is a leader in quality improvement and i was so glad to see her receive the award i think her project really highlighted the importance of being hands-on when you are learning how to do QI. QI can be dry and abstract, but what she did at her institution is she created multidisciplinary teams of students. So not just medical students, but also nursing students, pharmacy students to recreate the teams that we usually work in when we're in healthcare. And she taught them how to deal with an adverse event, how to do a root cause analysis based on a real case, real adverse event that happened to a real person at their institution. And I think going through it when it's real is very different than doing it in the abstract. And I think she talked a lot about how when the students realized what had happened and why, how many of them became emotional. And that really creates so much motivation to make improvements when it's personal and it's real and it happened to a patient that you took care of.
1: So, just to wrap up, and we also had in the education area a couple of talks from the residents, Kimberly Breglio from Duke University on a toolkit to improve microaggressions, and then Nishad Sote from University of Minnesota on ethics for the dermatology trainee. So, QI really is broad, and there's lots of different topics. If people want to know more about the resident talks or... Other topics on this, are there AAD resources that they can look for? How can they find out more? How can they learn more about QI?
0: There are many resources that you could access if you wanted to learn more. All of the residents who are recipients of their awards, they will be recording updates about their projects that will be available on the AAD website. There is also a really wonderful quality improvement curriculum that was created under the umbrella of the Patient Safety and Quality Committee that is available online. And I have used it extensively myself when teaching residents and students QI. It's really very comprehensive. You can adapt it to your needs. And it's a great resource that I recommend. Gideon, anything else that you add? What other resources would you recommend?
1: I mean there was also the JAD CME article, two part CME article. There are some specific practice improvement modules that the AAD have produced and I think also that a lot of the people like you and I are true kind of believers in the the craft of QI and I think there's no better way to learn QI than to try and do it. So if you have a clinical problem, I think, speaking for myself, I'm I'm sure I speak for you too, Rita, we're always happy to help people, to kind of guide people, even if that's remotely. So reach out to us. We're happy to kind of like point you in the direction of a specific project or even kind of like help you think through how to solve that.
0: Agree. Find something you really care about improving and um, reach out if you need help.
1: Okay. Well, that is our podcast. Thank you for joining us, Rita. Um, And hopefully the listeners learned something.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more Dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to Dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.